Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store. What actually upsets me far more is that some of the salaries being offered for the entry level and middle roles are exactly the same as they were when I first moved to London 21 years ago. I mean, that's utterly shocking. Hello, I'm Rebecca Roberts. Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got Five Minutes, the PR, comms and marketing podcast answering things you'd normally have asked about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca here. This is another one of our finale episodes with Dr. Clea Bourne. We're joined by Dr. Clea Bourne, who's a senior lecturer at Goldsmith University Media and Communications Department. She's also the author of several publications, including her recent book, Trust, Power and Public Relations in Financial Markets. Clea, thanks very much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Glad to see you both. (laughs) Yeah, nice to see you too. Now, for a PR student leaving university today in this post-pandemic world, how on earth do you prepare them for the world of work, which has changed so dramatically? It's what I'm thinking about every single day because they are terrified. I mean, they're really terrified. Well, the whole point of the program that I run at Goldsmiths is to look at the changes that are actually happening in the professions and the degree of convergence that is actually happening between PR, traditional marketing, advertising, but also some of the new emerging professions in social media, SEO, database marketing, etc. And to understand what this means, if you are trying to enter the profession at the moment, the way that the job titles are changing, the way that the skills are changing and becoming more data driven. But for me, it actually distills down to one word. My entire teaching is to help students to understand the role of power in the industry and how power shapes every single experience that they have, whether it's dealing with clients or senior management, whether it's how they are, how they feel and how they're perceived as a PR profession. The most recent form of power that I actually talk about now is a power that is owned by digital platforms. And that's really quite significant. So we're talking about everything from big tech, which includes Google and Facebook, down to the in-house platforms that a lot of big companies are constructing to own their own customer data. And what's really significant, I think, for people who work in PR is that the digital platforms now have a great deal of control over what counts as a story. What counts as a story, but also what counts as a good story, what kind of emotion helps to drive that story. They also determine who gets to tell the story and who gets to contribute to your story if you actually start it. And most of all, they determine who gets to see the story and who gets to see the story years from now. So I think this this really has shifted the whole way that public relations practitioners should be thinking about power, particularly in relationship to the media. And for me, the second source of power are the professions that actually own the kind of digital expertise that allows them to work very closely with platforms. So we're talking about some of the emerging professions like data science. Many data scientists now work quite closely with marketing people, for example, but not necessarily all that closely with public relations. 
And so the big question that I have my students exploring is which of the promotional professions, whether it's marketing or advertising or PR or one of the emerging areas of specialism, is going to become the most influential in this era of data-driven communication. At the moment, I'm not seeing that it is PR. I think PR is owning the area that is actually least powerful, which is the production of content. There have been a couple of stories in the media this week, this is summer 2021, where PR agencies are are saying, yes, we've become content marketing firms. But the trouble is content production is possibly the least powerful thing that you can do because it's nothing to do really with the ultimate data strategy that's designing and driving all the stories as they move through platforms. That's so interesting. I mean, what do employers need to consider now for this next wave of PR students? You know, we've talked on the podcast about this notion that employers kind of want someone to hit the ground running and, you know, with some experience, it's almost like this impossible scenario for students who've been stuck at home for almost two years. Well, We have talked about that quite a lot every year. And interestingly, I just finished a speaker series where I had quite a few of my past students come back and talk to current students. And I want to say a special thank you to them, especially to Erica, who took time out of her presentation to tell students just how much bullshit recruitment ads actually are. So the example that she was giving to them is that she's been with her current company for maybe about four or five years. And the recruitment ad that she responded to in order to get her entry level job, she was just showing it to her boss the other day. And her boss nearly fell off his chair because it was essentially describing his job (laughs) as the boss. (laughs) And he said, plus more, plus more. So, you know, so we were having a good conversation about how some of these ads actually come about and tracing the fact that the whole recruitment sector sort of drives all of this because they do tend to throw the kitchen sink at a lot of these ads in order to get as many people to answer the recruitment process as possible. But we have had some really interesting conversations at at conferences where academics are brought up face to face with heads of HR in some of the big PR agencies. And let me tell you, it's almost a bit pugilistic, (laughs) the the level of of contention between us because we're pointing out that what what is expected of students these days is utterly, utterly ridiculous. And when past students come back and tell you, well, hey, this is what my entry level job is all about. It's it's not what was required at all. So in terms of of preparing them, I think uh, what, what I found was very interesting about this question is I've actually been doing some research on recruitment ads myself for the book that I'm writing now about public relations discourses in the digital age. And The interesting thing that I'm finding is not just that some of the ads are getting longer and longer as they just add everything on, including all of this really upsetting stuff about how passionate you have to be and how enthusiastic and how incredible and how super, you know, super. Well-connected and social following as well. Yeah, absolutely. Things that your boss probably isn't. What actually upsets me far more is that some of the salaries being offered for the entry-level and middle roles are exactly the same as they were when I first moved to London 21 years ago. I mean, that's utterly shocking. Who's looking at that? Not the professional associations particularly. They collect the data, but what did they actually do about the fact that salaries are not changing, but the ads are getting longer and longer? That's a really good point. I was speaking to someone actually on another podcast about how, how you could divide this country like by age now and how young people are almost getting stuck in roles because, you know, they say, well, they're so flighty, but actually, yeah, if you compare it to a 50-year-old, they're not moving jobs. But that 50-year-old, when they were 
21, 22, were seeking opportunities and able to jump up and get pay rises. And, and I think for a lot of talent, they're getting very much stuck in those lower middle kind of roles because there isn't the opportunity to kind of work up to take on other stuff. There are a lot of words that I find are used to describe young people generally and their work behavior and their social behavior that I just think need to be chucked out the window. I mean, back when I used to work in in the industry myself, lots of my entry-level workers had just come out of university. Many of them were working in London for the first time and they were living in conditions that were worse than when they were at university because at least there they typically had a half-decent landlord to make sure that the windows closed properly during the winter and that there weren't any rats. And many of them would be living in flats, sharing with maybe six or nine people and walking to work if they could to save money and sharing tips at lunchtime on where to go and buy in bulk so that they could make food stretch for two months. And these aren't poor people. These are people who just simply cannot on their PR salary make a life in London work. And I really don't think that a lot of people, you know, possibly over the age of 50, maybe even some of the younger ones, actually understand the cost of living now. I mean, today, this is July 2021, there have been some news reports about inflation rising. I'm just thinking, where has the media been? Inflation has been rising for quite some time. Okay, maybe the official numbers are being kept down, but I see it in my grocery shop. You know, what I used to be able to buy with 200 pounds is now possibly stretching out to maybe 150, 160 pounds. I'm leaving a lot of stuff off the list. And this is not being collated properly because, you know, there's sort of an appeasement going on. So, yes, there's a lot of economic reality that is affecting not just not just people working in public relations. There's a lot of similar sorts of roles where they're being expected to bring everything and being paid little or nothing in return. I think it's also that discourse around the return to the office and that illusion that everyone's enjoying the working from home and yet some people are actually sitting in in the, in a shared house some of them can't even come to the dining room table because there's six other people in the house and then they're stuck in their bedrooms all day every day working from a bed that's where they eat they sleep they work and, and some of them don't even have a break from that and I guess when you have the luxury of say having a big house or you have a you transfer formed your shares into an office you know working from home seems wonderful I, I like how you said um, converting the shed into an office actually a lot of people are working at their second home Harriet <laughs> not just converting something in the bottom of the garden so yes yeah, there are completely two nations when it comes to to working from home oh sorry I was going to say the use of the research I tend to do on like my side bit there's some stuff around young people having to pay for placements so they, they're not only expected to work for nothing, they are paying for the more desirable work opportunities, certainly in the States, but it's, it's now become a bit of a practice and it's just, it's just terrifying because it's like you're going to create more division. So if you're extremely wealthy and can afford to, this will be pet great. So what, what, what does certain areas, you know, the PR in, industry that needs to be more diverse in particular, if that precedent comes here, that's really worrying that if agencies even dare to do that. So Yeah, I mean, a, a few years ago, Goldsmiths and my department first, but also Goldsmiths more broadly decided as a policy that it wasn't going to promote unpaid internships. 
The term work placement, we use a little bit differently because for us, a work placement is something that's actually part of your program. So in other words, there's some sort of return in for a short period of time, you'll do work on which you are assessed for which you then receive a grade, which will then count toward your degree. So the fact that you may not be paid for that as a placement is a little bit different because there's some sort of return. With the unpaid placements, you would not believe where I get emails from. I mean, really supposedly reputable companies. The one practice that I noticed has stopped is where they were offering unpaid internships lasting for one year. One year. Yeah. <laughs> so so I haven't seen as many of those lately. And I think it has helped that there have been a number of campaigns trying to push back on this. But this actually does relate to the very same discussion that we were having about the recruitment ads and requiring young people to do everything and not compensating them accordingly. Because essentially, this is we need to, to, to see the bigger picture of what's going on here. People who work in communications, whether it's PR or advertising or marketing communication, etc., they're, they're being squeezed. Clients and organizations want value for money. They're using the term return on investment as if it were a physical weapon. So it's, you know, the, the services have to expand while the fees that are being charged are being kept at the same or, or you're being told to cut back. And if you don't cut back, then the organization will just turn to the gig economy and find people who will do it for very little. So, of course, what happens is that the pressure then is placed on the, the entry-level jobs and the lower to middle jobs. There is that strata of middle. I remember this well from working in the profession myself, where especially if you're in a small to medium sized firm, you're going to try and hang on to those people in the middle because they have lots of experience and they're in demand. And in a way, um, I think agencies and departments sort of sacrifice in order to hang on to that middle layer, which it, it, you've had to invest in to build them up. And of course, the juniors pay the price for that. So this is a, a, a broader discussion of things that are linked in terms of what I would say is essentially the political economy of public relations and how it works, which isn't well looked at in many of the surveys, uh, because it starts with sort of a macro understanding of how the industry works and how it turns a profit and then start to drill down and how this is playing out in the lives of the actual practitioners. Yeah, I mean, I think I've never heard anyone explain it in the way that you've explained it. And I see it happening. And it's interesting listening to you explain it, because even for me, who's worked in a sort of senior and sort of that middle management role, you can see that there is an emphasis of how do we make sure that this person stays, whether that's me or my counterparts who are at the same level versus when someone's still new and then they're starting and then you look at the salary differences and you also see how sort of you're approached by recruiters or other senior in-house people to try and poaching, as they say. So it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about it. I think the, the thing I... I really wanted to ask you was we really, we really struggle to get our heads around things like cryptocurrency, NFTs, fintech, blockchain. It all moves so fast and there's so many words. So how do we understand it better, especially the, these new financial banking systems and, and sort of trying to just distill it down to the public because it get it can get so confusing. Do you know the, the reason I actually became interested in the financial sector myself was because when I was much younger, I remember sitting down in meetings opposite clients who were supposed to be financial gurus and everything that they said was going straight over my head, but I couldn't get away from this sensation that they were talking absolute rubbish. 
you know, or they were lying. There was just something about uh, the speed that they were talking at, the body language, the whole, you, you, you know, it's like being on a really bad date and you just want to escape really quickly and you can't put your finger on why it is. But boy, do you never want to see that person again. And you would get this from quite a lot of people who work with products and services that are supposedly very complex to understand. So the first thing that I would say for people who are listening, especially if you are junior in a middle level role and you feel really intimidated when you walk into meetings like this, is, is first to remember other kinds of technologies and complex things. Television, for example, that technology was invented in the 1920s and commercial airlines have been around for longer than that. And I'm telling you, if you asked me now to explain to you how television technology works, and I know I've been taught it, and the same thing with aviation technology, how does the aircraft lift up? How's, how does it stay in the air? I've been taught this stuff and I still couldn't explain it to you now, but that would not stop me from wanting to represent a good TV electronics brand or a good airline. Okay. So maybe familiarity has something to do with it and makes us feel more comfortable around things that seem complex that we can't understand. But if familiarity is one part of it, I, I think another way to, to think about this is the things that we're actually less familiar with. And I've always had this joke at home about complexity. If you cast your mind back to 2014, the European Space Agency dropped this little lander called Philae on a moving comet. And the maths and physics involved in achieving this was just astonishing. But none of the experts involved in that had any problem with sitting down on breakfast television or on a radio program and explaining the how because they knew how to explain it. And more to the point, they were very happy to be transparent about it because they actually wanted the public to engage with this fantastic event. I think that something quite different happens when someone is, is explaining something in a way that you don't quite understand. They're presenting something that, that is too complex to be explained because quite often, and I talk about this in one of the chapters in my book, what's really behind this is that they don't want us asking too many questions, which leads us very neatly back to your original question, Harriet, which is about the topic of, I'm going to call it crypto investments, because both cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and NFTs or non-fungible tokens can be considered crypto investments. Now, let's just start with the names. And I also talk about this in my book. Who died and let someone name these things? I mean, what the heck? NFT? Seriously? You never had any plan for anyone to understand what that was if that was the name that you decided to give it. And cryptocurrency, I mean, the, you know, the clue is there in the, in the word crypto. Is, does that sound like something you should have anything to do with? Probably not. So the way that I see it, and again, I would say you need to step back and take a big picture approach to this. And to quite often, because this is the area that I'm interested in, in which is the economy and, and how PR and other kinds of promotion actually play a role in how we understand the economy, is to understand that for people who are looking around for things to invest in or to speculate in, speculating is, is a bit different from investing. The truth is that for people who live in economies like the United Kingdom or the United States, or Germany, or France, or Japan, for very, very, very long time, we've had these ultra low interest rates, which means that having a savings account is not a particularly appealing thing to do, even though 
you kind of know you're supposed to do it. But it also means that the regular things that you invest in, the return that they're offering is not particularly appealing. So people tend to look around for opportunities that are going to give them better return. And anything that is volatile will usually give you an opportunity to earn some money, especially if you're a speculator, because a speculator goes in and looks for quick opportunities where they can turn a quick uh, return. So you can create volatility around things like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies or NFTs just by starting rumors. That's exactly how a lot of investment works. And social media has turned out to be fantastic as a medium for spreading rumors. And what's even better about social media for the people who are actually involved in spreading the rumors is you don't even need to get a human being to do it anymore. You can get an automated bot to happily just keep spreading rumors. And that drives Bitcoin and other other altcoins up, and then it drives them straight back down again. And for regular people, they're sitting and, and hearing these, these stories or reading about them and going, oh, you know, I kind of wanted to get in there, but I'm not sure if I should because now I've heard it's gone down. But the people who actually know what they're doing don't care whether it goes up or down because they can make money either way. So I think if you work in public relations, taking a step back and understanding what the broader investment landscape, why, why it's pushing these sorts of instruments in, in our faces, that's helpful. And then I think the second thing is to decide how much of the tech bit that you actually do need to understand. There's a lot of people arguing that cryptocurrencies are going to become real money. That's a marketing campaign. You know, it's in it's in their interest to do that. Cryptocurrency isn't real money at the, at the moment for a couple of reasons. It's not tradable in the sense that cash might be. And also it's not transparent. And that lack of transparency is a big problem because the transparency is what leads you to trust it. Um, but it absolutely, I think, is going to become an asset class. I've noticed that some of the really big investment companies are calling for this now. So I don't think it's going to go anywhere for now. But I think it's more important to see it as something that people are investing in and speculating in than something that's going to completely take over how we how we do business as everyday people for now. With NFTs, I think the other way to think about NFTs for me is the fact that these are collectibles. And I've never found any particular rhyme or reason to why people collect the things that they do. You know, some people collect trainers, and you've seen the prices that some of these things can go to. Some people collect jewelry, some people collect spoons, some people collect China cats. Who, who can explain why people collect what they do? So I don't really need to understand why people are collecting NFTs because it's just, it's no more weird than any of the other things that people collect. I think if you are the kind of PR person who is working much more with digital files or, or what's being called now digital assets, you will probably come to manage NFTs as some of the stuff that you manage on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, there is a new specialism referred to as data asset management. It's not so new in the US, a little bit newer here. I am encouraging my students to look at this as a direction because uh, it pays reasonably well for entry-level roles. It's seen as less creative, but the jobs are out there. So if you're going to be working in data asset management, say for a media house or a big advertising agency or one of the media buying agencies, then it does make sense to understand the tech behind NFTs. I think for the rest of us, more understanding it as some sort of 
alternative investment category, but not particularly more exciting than that. And the fact that you will always find these sorts of categories rising up as an answer to the fact that we can't get the kind of return that we want from other kinds of investments. And you also see a lot more of these things cropping up after there's been some sort of crisis where people are are sort of just looking around for interesting opportunities. The bottom line is, Harriet, don't worry about complexity. It's the least it's the least of our problems in public relations. So I don't need to worry about the definitions. So you wrote trust, power and public relations in the financial markets pre-pandemic. What are the foundation principles in the book that you feel are more important than ever today as we rebuild back better? Yeah, well, okay. Well, one of the things that had always concerned me and a lot of other academics and economy watchers and activists at the time was that we had this marvelous opportunity in the years that followed the 2008 financial crisis to really change the shape of our economy. Unfortunately, I think that that debate became very politicized and very wrapped up in things like austerity and benefit scrounging and Brexit and migration and a whole lot of other things. And then it became all too murky and just impossible to have these proper conversations. As a result, I think the financial sector got away with a heap and the government, successive governments have got away with a heap of things that they should have changed but didn't. And so that's left us with an economy that, again, isn't working for us in the face of a global pandemic. So one of the most important points that I made in my book is that the real crisis of trust in the economy and in financial markets is that more and more of us as UK consumers are actually being excluded from mainstream finance. And for people who fall into that category, they're being increasingly driven toward inappropriate high-risk products and into a spiral of mounting debt. And if you do a quick search of financial stories related to the pandemic, you'll see this absolute chasm between the haves and the have-nots. On the one hand, you'll find plenty of media stories about um, more well-to-do folk who are sitting on this mountain of savings, apparently, because they haven't had anywhere to spend their money during the pandemic. It is a problem I wish I had, but, you know, not my experience. But for every one of these more well-to-do people, there is actually hundreds more who are living a life of greater precarity because of COVID. Whether it is those of us who are lucky enough to have a full-time job at the moment, but our organizations are facing all sorts of upheaval that are related to COVID and have maybe been through rounds of redundancy already with more rounds of redundancy to come. I mean, in a way, you know, a lot of this is going to come home to roost after summer. That's when we're really going to see what the shape of the the UK economy is. But then, of course, there's all the people who had already lost their job, whether it was in 2020 or in the first half of 2021. And they either haven't been able to find work again or they have been thrust into the gig economy, which, you know, many businesses like to paint in a very positive light because they've never had to work as gig workers themselves. And so they haven't got the first clue of how it actually excludes you from mainstream finance. So the interesting thing is I've heard quite a few of the heads of uh, some of the newer financial providers just talking about how great it is to be self-employed and and all you need to do is get yourself organized and have a plan and yada, yada, yada. But the truth is that the way that finance, um, the banking system is set up in the UK is that it still privileges people who have nine to five jobs. I don't understand how we are this far into the 21st century. And banking is still set up to privilege people who have a full-time nine-to-five job or who own a home because that 
leaves out most young people these days. And if you work in areas like PR and communication, you are much more likely to be a gig worker now than you were 20 years ago. So that really bothers me. And it bothers me that we don't seem to have had the will to change these things. And that's because I feel that we just haven't had the the kind of leadership who are willing to lead these sorts of conversations in a way that unifies Britain rather than divides us. And we've um, heard narratives like the one that we're heading into the the Roaring Twenties. How do we balance that optimism and hope message that PR pros, without simply kind of throwing platitudes that don't necessarily say anything, trust in banks and financial institutions since 2008 have kind of waned quite thin. Have you seen any good examples of good trust-building campaigns in the banking sector? Okay, well, in terms of PR and optimism, I've actually written about this in relation to the role that PR is taking in promoting artificial intelligence and automation. It's a very, very good example of the way that PR always jumps on to the latest bandwagon. And again, you can't blame the industry for some of the reasons that I was outlining before, you know, that the the way that profits are set up across the PR sector and the, the way that constantly pleasing the client or the organization sort of defines the shape of your department or the shape of your agency. But on the other hand, we do have to blame the industry because the way that you define yourself as a PR professional, where you're always being optimistic in the face of, you know, a pandemic or obvious financial results that say that you're not doing well, obvious COVID numbers that say that we're not only still in a pandemic, we could be going into the big next wave of it. That again, I think is is an issue of leadership. It's a very interesting profession, if you think about it, because it has these longstanding professional associations, which most people don't belong to. And I think more irritating still is that some of the big agency leaders won't have anything to do with the professional associations. So there's no kind of unified voice that that helps PR to speak in a more long-term way about both the profession, but also how it serves the economy. I think that to me is, is a kind of conversation I would like to see change in the PR profession, where people think more long-term about the economy and where PR sees as a role for itself in helping the rest of the constituents in the UK to think more long-term as well, because short-termism plagues everything that we do, not just the corporate world, but the way that governments operate in Westminster democracies. So yeah, I absolutely agree that there is a problem with optimism. But I think to solve it, we we need more unified leadership. And to be honest, I don't think that that leadership is necessarily going to come from the people who have the top positions. I think some of the, the recent developments with some of these campaigns to address diversity yet again, coming from the middle of the PR profession, people who are in middle management, people who are in their 30s or very early 40s. Those people to me, I think, are are much more important and authentic voices for the PR profession going forward. And I think they're the ones who can remind us over and over again that as optimistic as we're being about whatever latest development um, is happening, we still haven't solved problems like diversity, pay, opaque practices that prevent people from getting into the profession in the first place and climbing the ladder once they've been there. These are problems that have been around for decades and we still haven't solved them. And you're being optimistic about how we come out of COVID? Get real. In terms of trust building campaigns in financial services, I am going to give you a cop-out answer because I don't actually have a great answer for this question because of the way that promotional campaigns actually work these days. In other words, I've when you asked this question and I gave it some thought, I realized I haven't actually seen 
many financial campaigns at all because none are being served up to me online, which is where I spend most of my media time these days. And when it comes to television, I spend less and less of my time on linear television. And the stuff that I'm seeing on linear television when I do see it is pretty basic. It's, you know, buy this life insurance coverage now, no medical check required. I mean, those ads have been around for 50 years at least, if not more. So yeah, I haven't seen lots that I would regard as innovative, creative, or particularly, you know, different from what's going on elsewhere. However, what I would point out in terms of the way that trust in financial campaigns tends to work these days is that it's worth bearing in mind how much the medium is changing the way that we actually relate to brands. By which I mean that, and we there is some industry, there's some industry research that backs it up. Uh, that people, particularly younger people, people who are forty and under, tend to find financial communication more trustworthy if it's more useful to them, if it gives them what marketers like to call actionable advice or actionable insight. That's the thing now is actionable insight. And that doesn't describe most financial campaigns. There's still more about, you know, aren't we a great brand? We've been around for 100 years, that sort of thing. But the financial brands that do things very differently tend to be the digital banks and the digital insurance companies, the ones that are all apps on your phone. So I'm not necessarily saying this is an example of a trustworthy brand, but it is the kind of brand that understands how to communicate with consumers via social media, which is to tell stories and to make the consumer part of the story rather than to put the brand as the protagonist in the story. So I think this week, Starling Bank launched its most recent campaign. It's called Hello, Starling Bank. And this is about actually a very worrying form of technology. One that you maybe shouldn't be trusting at all, which is facial recognition. So you can set up an account with Starling Bank using your face just by looking at your phone. It's not the first financial provider to do this. Um, Some insurance companies have been doing this sort of thing for a while. But it is a good example of how it sort of eases you into a form of technology that you probably should be much more worried about than many of us are inevitably going to be. But then I I tend to see a disconnect with companies like Starling because, on the other hand, I don't feel that they are playing the sort of role that they should be playing in terms of where we're going to be going with payments and money in the years to come. Starling is very keen on making UK finance as digital as possible. And its founder has talked about the fact that cash is going to be gone from our lives in the next few years or so. Okay, fine. But in reality, there are a lot of people who are not set up for that kind of life yet. They cannot lead a life that involves digital payments because they don't have that kind of access. And even if they did, how would they afford it in the way that people who have great broadband reach can or a smartphone or just the, you know, inevitable costs of running whatever apps you might happen to have on your phone. And I think some of the other things that concern me, apart from the fact that maybe older people are left out of this, poorer people are left out of this, people who have problems with access are left out of this. But also there is a problem that cash sets up for people who are afraid for their own safety. Imagine yourself as a battered woman trying to escape from your living conditions and and a, a predatory partner. If that person is able to track you wherever you go because you're doing digital payments, it's almost impossible to hide. Cash allows you that freedom to get away from people who don't mean you well. So there's all sorts of implications, I think, to removing 
cash from the economy, which becomes an issue of not just how we trust a particular financial brand. It's back to what I wrote about in the book, which is how we're trusting the system and the fact that we're not having the conversations about the economy and the financial market that we should have been having back in 2008. Those conversations still need to be had. So talking about PR as activism and and having these big conversations. So one of them that was going on last year was about ethical investing when the allegations about slavery in the fashion brand Boohoo came to light and people were saying, well, you know, ethical investing is, is much more common now and ETC, but do people really know what's where their pensions are being invested and even I invest but not all the time are the companies listed with each environmental consideration or each of their employment practices and you've got to go and dig for that information but what needs to change with the messaging to have an impact so people actually start to think about ethical investing and 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 making it an actual consideration at the front of mind for for people well I mean, I have a view on this as an academic, but I actually used to work in this area when I worked in the city in public relations and work quite closely with teams who offered and managed these sorts of funds. And they've been around for quite a long time. The truth is the conversation has changed a little bit in part because of this big picture that I said is is really so important when we think of so many PR problems today. That is the fact that digital technologies and automation have really changed the investment landscape. 20 years ago, there were, you know, a a smaller minority of people putting their money in what's called tracker funds. These are, these are funds where you essentially design an algorithm to run them to track something in the market. And the idea is that humans have minimal day-to-day investment decisions over how the funds work. But now these funds have really taken over. And they've taken over because the tech has changed. You know, there's better computing power. There's more data for these, these funds to make sense of and to track. But more importantly, they are cheaper than other forms of investment. And if there's one thing you will find with things like ethical funds and environmental funds is that they're, they're rarely ever going to be the cheapest thing that's out there. So for people who have some disposable income, but maybe not heaps, which is, you know, quite a lot of people thinking about the ethics of where they're investing, investing or the environment is a level of bandwidth that they maybe haven't even got to yet. And if you're the kind of person, this would probably cover people like me, where the only kind of investing you actually do is your organization's pension scheme, I am too busy trying to keep my job (laughs) to worry about that sort of thing. And I think a lot of people could relate to what I'm saying. So the point is that it's not that people don't care about these things when you raise it with them. But if there's one decision that makes them go in and out of a fund, or, or rather two, it's first of all, how well the fund is doing. And secondly, how much do I have to pay in fees for the privilege of being in that fund? You know, that, that's when it comes to investing, those are just the two big questions that people have. So in terms of, of improving some of this, I do think when media stories come out, people do start to think a little bit more. They may not think this way for the long term, but they do, they, they possibly will act on some of these decisions if they realize not only that a company is maybe involved in child exploitation, for example, but that they're not going to do anything about it when you call them out on their behavior. I think this is really quite crucial. So what's been difficult for the experts who work in this area, and I worked with a team for for years, many, many years ago, who did this sort of work, is that they found that they were fashionable and trendy as far as their employer was concerned. When things were, were going well, the fact that they were probing and checking to see that companies were behaving properly and 
investing in and, and operating in ways that were ethical and sustainable, etc., was fine as long as the company was making money. Once the company, the investment firm or whatever they, they were, faced new forms of competition or some sort of disruption, rather like PR teams and marketing teams who often find that they're the first to go or the first to be downsized, people who work in this area of ethics, sustainability, CSR, etc., they find out suddenly that they're quite expendable too. And I don't think that without some sort of regulatory oversight that that is particularly going to change. It is treated in the investment sector as a fashion and as a trend that tends to go up and down in popularity. And because finance is just like any other product or service that you can think of, where where there are trends and waves and things that are hot for the time, and then tomorrow they're not. One thing we've seen a lot of is the rise of financial scams. Um, scammers have become more sophisticated. What do you think we're missing as communicators in the campaigns that we could do to sort of raise awareness and help protect the public? Have Again, have you seen any good examples there? Again, I think this is a big picture question because it's part of a larger problem, certainly that the UK advertising sector has been trying to look at, which is because of the way that platform digital platforms work, we're, we're being simply bombarded with messages in a way that we never were before. We used to complain about being bombarded even before Facebook and Google and you know all the big platforms were thrusting messages our way. So what the human brain is having to deal with these days is, is kind of astonishing. That bombardment involves a mixture of perfectly trustworthy, verifiable companies with you know messages that we probably should be paying attention to, right across the spectrum to you know, maybe some of the altcoin operators that we were talking about before who may not be scams, but they're certainly questionable. And right down to the just straightforward scam operators who have really used COVID as an opportunity to get into uh, people's um, minds, their awareness, sort of visibility. So I think there's a couple of things that we need to think about. Advertising has been looking at bombardment. I think actually this is one of those cases where all of the specialisms need to come together and look at this as a joint problem. Because at the moment, the advertising regulator is trying to pay attention to this and they do not have enough hands, literally do not have enough hands since they started to look at social media advertising to keep up with the stuff that is out there. The other side of this, of course, is the role that the digital platforms play in this and and the fact that we keep avoiding this very difficult conversation, which is that they make money off this stuff. Facebook makes money off scam ads. So it's not particularly in their interest to get rid of all of them. You know, they can they can throw their hands up and say, we're really sorry, which is what they're very good at. They'll say, we're sorry. And they might do a, a, a couple of little things to, to tweak their algorithm, but they don't get rid of the problem altogether. So there's on the one side, there is the industries, the various industries involved coming together. On the other side, there is really putting the platform's feet to the fire. And the best way to do that is to hit them where it hurts, you know? They need to start being taxed for the volume of scam stuff that they're allowing people to see on platforms, for example. I don't think this can be down to how large our content moderation teams are. And then I suppose the other element of this, because you were asking about whether there are any good ads addressing uh, the problem of scams. Again, who are these ads being served up to? I can tell you that I am hearing and seeing a campaign at the moment about pension scams, which is one of the biggest uh, areas of scams, particularly since the start of COVID. There's a lot of intensity on radio stations. How many people listen to 
a regular radio station these days. You're probably on Spotify or some other platform like that, curating your own music and your own listening, your podcasts, etc. On Linear TV, again, I have been seeing these ads and you would think for a pension campaign, that probably makes sense because they're reaching the over 60s if they do that. But the rest of us need to have some sort of awareness. And the reason we need that awareness is there is one thing about human nature that hasn't changed, which is that we're more likely to learn about something like this and more importantly, to take it seriously if that message comes from someone we know whom we admire. So someone who is influential in our particular circle. And I'm old enough to still use Facebook. And I see this kind of behavior happen all the time, where if one person says something, it gets largely ignored. If another person says it, everyone sort of piles in and there's a huge debate and people decide to change behavior, all the rest of it. It would be nice to think that that could happen organically or that you could control it in your PR campaign. But once again, it's a platform who decides who is influential. So even if there is someone who in real life we would listen to all the time, who says that the platform is going to let them speak? You know, so that's a real issue. The short answer to your question is I haven't seen any ads or campaigns that are particularly creative or innovative in this respect. That doesn't surprise me because the kinds of organizations that care most about this sort of thing won't have the budget necessarily to be as creative or compelling in terms of the sorts of messaging that they tell. However, I'm willing to concede that there's lots of stuff that I'm not seeing simply because they're not necessarily being served up to me. But the the other short bit of the answer is that I think that the good guys need to start using the same digital tactics that the bad guys are using. You know, if you are using dark techniques to track people around the internet so that you can scam the right people in the right place, why is there not an ad that immediately follows on the back of that scam ad that says, hang on, how do you know that this is an authentic operator? Now, that's going to take some sort of investment. It will take an investment both in skills. It takes an investment in having your own marketing technology uh, stack, for example. But again, that's an industry conversation that does need to start happening. We can't just be setting up technologies solely for the purpose of making profit. The technologies also have to look after the consumer and look after citizens, more importantly. And I guess the, the last thing I would I would just be curious about is what advice do you have for anyone who's thinking about getting into financial PR, whether at the beginning of their career or transitioning? So they've been in another sector and then they want to consider going into financial PR. Harriet, the real answer to that question is that not enough people are thinking about it. You know, I am critical about a lot of the things that happen in financial markets, but I'm critical of, you know, lots of communications activity as well. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be thinking of, of working in these areas, because I actually think financial markets could better benefit from having much better people working across their PR and marketing teams. So the first thing is to actually think about it. You know, that I can tell you from my students coming into to my classroom, it's not even on their radar. They are much more interested in working for the big retail brands, uh, working for fashion, maybe working for a not-for-profit organization. You know, that tends to be the spectrum of the students that I tend to see. The typical response you will get from younger people is that finance is boring. And finance has done a lot of work to make people feel that way. <laughs> they shouldn't. So for me, the, the the number one tip would be, yes, a lot more people should be con considering it because 
Finance is very, very broad. So there is really something for everyone. When I started off working in PR many, many years ago and in another country, my very first financial client was the central bank of a small country. And it was the most incredible feeling. It felt like going back to school every day when you sat in a meeting with the people who work in a central bank, because it's their job to put the entire country under a microscope and try and make meaning of all the things that are happening. And to me, there couldn't be anything more fascinating than understanding things from that macro level. Equally, I have worked with lots of people who are much more interested in the micro. They're interested in what things are like for the consumer on an everyday basis as they think about how they use their bank account how they think about an insurance policy, how they think about pension or savings or trying to get the kids off to university. So these are pretty basic things to know about yourself. Do you really like the big picture? Do you like understanding how the entire machine works? Or do you really like going down to the level of the everyday and what everyday folk are trying to think through? And that will tell you where your place could possibly be in the financial sector. So some people like the kind of high octane work of, of working in the stock markets or in mergers and acquisitions. So if you like a very testosterone driven type life, that might be for you. There's a lot of more straightforward stuff in that kind of work that is very, very you know, day-to-day plotting. But, you know, some people are really turned on by that sort of thing. On the other hand, there are other people who are much more interested in the more activist side of things and not-for-profit organizations. And there are heaps of them out there that are looking at financial services and how they could better serve uh, the poor, the marginalized, the young people in particular, young people in particular, I just think if you're young, that's a number one reason you should be interested in working in financial services right now, because financial services is not doing enough to serve you. The other thing that I would say is, and this is a plug, I did write a chapter that is exactly for people who have never even thought about entering the financial uh, sector. And it's in a book called Exploring PR. It's the fifth edition, which was edited by Ralph Tench and Stephen Waddington. It's not the kind of book that most of us would just go out and buy of our own accord because it's not cheap, but it is actually a very good book. And in that chapter, I tell you about the skills that you need, the capabilities, what sorts of things you should be reading, what sorts of jobs there are out there, what kinds of things you can do if you work as a PR person in financial markets. So the free stuff that you can do right now is use social media. There are lots of very good people on social media who will tell you lots of interesting things that you can learn about for free. One of the people I think is very useful, he's he's an activist and so knowledgeable, is a guy called Brett Scott, who you can follow on Twitter. Um, his account is at suitpossum. Don't ask. But he, he, for example, Harriet, is one of the go-to places to try and understand cryptocurrency and NFTs. He's great at explaining it. So I would start with financial Twitter and finding good people to follow because there you will get free information because, you know, most of us cannot afford to subscribe to things like the Financial Times. Not worrying too much about trying to understand complex finance at the moment. I would say the starting point is trying to understand economics. So if you're currently studying and you have the opportunity to do an economics module, that's a good thing to do. But if you've left studying behind, there are heaps of places where you can find a really good grounder in economics. Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics, which is very affordable, is a great place to start. It's such an accessible book on economics. And to me, that would be one of my starting points if I were 
starting out all over again. So there's free stuff out there that will help you learn some of the basics. There is not so free stuff that will help you delve down a little bit more to help you to understand what's going on out there. And the bottom line is no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what kinds of things you're interested in, there is some area of financial markets that is probably right for you. Thanks for joining us and everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes. We're talking about the questions and issues that matter to you. So DM us on social or get in touch with Harriet at commsovercoffee.com or myself, Rebecca at threadandfable.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe so others can find us and have five minutes with us. Find us on Twitter at RebeccaRobert7 or at Harriet Smalzy. Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store.